morning, family. Good morning. Grab your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. That's our gift to you. If you do not own a Bible, or if you just need to borrow it for today, that's okay, too. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Our second week back in Ephesians. Just for fun, I went back. At, looked at my notes uh, and said, man, when, when did we start Ephesians? I couldn't remember. That was a year and a month ago. So we're, we're 13 months in on this little child called Ephesians. And uh, during this time, we've actually had a few kids born and a few more that are on their way. And so we're excited about that. Um, and we're just going to call them Ephesians for the rest of their lives because they were all born during the book of Ephesians. So... Uh, we had a few Luke-borns as well. That's what we called them, Luke-borns, when we were going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, but we're back in Ephesians. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 this morning. So I invite you to turn there. We're going to read together. And at the end of that reading, uh, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you then to respond and say thanks be to God. Verse number 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul begins his prayer. As we can see, if you jump ahead to verse 14, he repeats those words for this reason, and he begins to pray for the Ephesians for the second time. That he's only three, what we would call three chapters in, and this is already the second time through this discourse of theology that he's breaking down for them, that he's drawn to his knees in prayer for these people. But as he begins to pray, he's interrupted by his own thoughts, as he begins to remind them the whole reason that he is writing this letter in the first place. Now, one of the things that we understand as we begin to study Paul's epistles is that usually he's writing these epistles because an epistle just means letter. So he's writing these letters to these churches because there's something that has happened since the time that he was with them last that has caused some kind of disruption in the church. And so he's writing to give correction or rebuke or encouragement to them as other people have come behind Paul and they've said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What did Paul say? No, 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 no. You think that you can just love God and do whatever you want? No, 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 no. You need to be circumcised, right? That was what was coming to the Galatians and Paul comes along so eloquently and says that he wishes that they wouldn't just circumcise themselves, but go ahead and do the whole job, right? With a dull spoon. Oh, wait, no, that's not what he said. Anyways, 
He, he comes and he brings correction. And, and he writes to the Corinthians and, and he says, well, wait a minute, guys. It should not be what I am hearing from people who are coming from you and saying that you're, you're, you've answered the question, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? And you've said, yes, we should. Let's outdo one another sinning and see who's received the most grace from God. And Paul's like, no, 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 wait. You guys have missed it. And so Paul is addressing these things, and there's something that's happening in these Ephesians Christians churches and people who are coming who are trying to pull them away from the gospel. If we jump to Revelation and Paul's letters to the churches, we find that actually it happened. That John writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, you, you've done well in all these things, but one thing you haven't done well. You've, you've forgotten your first love. And what, what was that first love? What was that first thing that brought them to God? It was the gospel. And so Paul here in Ephesians is contending for the gospel that proclaimed to these Gentile sinners that God came for them in Christ Jesus. And that every requirement that was needed was met in him. And so Paul is contending for this gospel. And we see the theme of what he's wanting to show to them in chapter 1, verse 10. Remember when we were going through chapter 1, we said that verse 10 was really almost like the thesis of this whole thought for Paul as he's writing to them. And so I invite you to look back there. In fact, let's go at verse 9. Saying, making known to us the mystery of his will, meaning God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So, so there's something that's happening that's being set forth in Christ, and 10 tells us what it is, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. You see, the Ephesians were Greeks and Gentiles. And they had a dominant story. I mean, if ever there was a culture of people that took pride in their history and their dominant story, it was the Greeks. Because their dominant story was filled with a mythology that was fake news about who they were, essentially. And everything about who they were was wrapped up in this mythology that was tied in this deeply tribal and national identity as who they were as Greeks. Right? Think about the stories of the Trojan Warriors and soldiers, the 300 at Thermopylae. These were all deeply entrenched and tied into their identities as Greeks. And more than that, it was tied to the worship of their pagan gods and ritualistic sacrifices to appease them and grant them ease from their worldly troubles or blessings for greater influence and power in return 
for greater and greater allegiance and sacrifice and obedience and blood. That was their dominant story. And Paul comes and he's proclaiming this gospel. And what was this gospel doing for these Ephesians? It was rewriting their history. Why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You see, Paul was coming along and he was proclaiming to them a gospel that not just that Jesus came once upon a time, but that before time, God had already covenanted within himself to send his son to redeem for himself a people that he had already chosen to be his. Which means what? That the Greeks that were being transformed by the gospel had a more deeper and dominant story that began before their own histories. Before the people of Greece could ever say this and this happened and this is why we are who we are, Paul is saying before the foundations of the world, the God of the Jews that you've heard about set his affections on you and chose you before the foundation of the world. And while you didn't know that any of that was happening, it was happening. And while you didn't know about any of the promises that he had made concerning you, they were made in spite of you, and God was at work bringing them to pass. And now I'm here to tell you, though you knew nothing about it, it's been in motion since the beginning, since before the beginning. And now your history is being rewritten. Paul goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 11, to these Greek Gentile sinners who have become saints through faith in Jesus Christ, that in him they have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. an inheritance that they were predestined for according to the purpose of the Jewish God who predestined them for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. They didn't know the God of Israel in that kind of way. Anything that they knew of the God of Israel would have been something to strike fear in their hearts and terror. What did they have to do with the God of Israel, this God of the Jews? They were, as Paul reminded them in chapter 2, called the uncircumcision by the Jews, unclean, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, if we really want an idea of their concept of the Jewish God, we just have to look as far as our readings from our reap journals this last week as we've been going through Joshua. And we see Rahab 
and she's there, and she's, oh, no, we've heard about you guys and your God. And we're scared to death, right? Rahab confirms that the people surrounding Israel knew about the Israelites, knew about their God, but their knowledge of him was only superseded by the mystery and fear that surrounded him. Imagine the, the Ephesian people as Paul's writing. Who was this God who protected a rebellious people? Who disciplined but then restored them? Who rescued them over and over and over again? Who conquered the gods of ancient Egypt but then allowed them to be conquered by the Romans with seeming silence? This was a God of deep mystery and terror. who did what he wanted in spite of what the people who said they were worshiping were doing. But then messengers came out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, footmen bringing the news of a battle won that no one knew had been fought, announcing good news, whispers of this Jew named Yeshua. They called him Jesus in Greek, who was tortured and killed on a Roman cross, this was nothing new. <laughs> Being tortured and killed on a Roman cross was nothing new, but there was something new. They were saying that this man rose from the dead. And every sacrifice that they had ever made, whether of bulls or of goats, they remained dead. Even when their gods demanded their own children and they offered them up on the altars as a sacrifice, they were never returned to them. They remained dead where they were slain, lost to them forever, taken by their gods who were supposed to help them, but all they ever felt was more and more enslaved to ever-thirsting gods who only required more and more blood. But this Jew, Yeshua, Jesus, he died and he came back. They were saying that he was called the son of the Jewish God, some even saying that he was the king of the Jews, but he was killed by the Romans at the request of the Jews. But the whispers said that this death was a sacrifice for sin. And when he came back, it was said that the God of the Jews said, no more blood required. No more sacrifices for sin or for blessings. It is finished, he said. No more sacrifices, but that for all those who claimed his sacrifice for themselves, they were washed in his blood, they said, and cleansed from all uncleanness before the Jewish God. Could it be? Could it really be one sacrifice for all time? Could it really be that there was a God who extended love 
and paid the price himself rather than requiring it in blood from his followers. Suddenly, these Gentiles hearing these whispers could see hope in their destitute and broken-hearted conditions. The prison doors of their own sin and failings were swinging open just from hearing the news, this good news about this man, Jesus. And they were saying, they were saying that he didn't just come for the Jews. And so here's Paul writing to them. And what does he call them? He calls them sons. He calls them adopted. He says it was always the plan. That it wasn't suddenly that this God had changed, who was angry at sin, who said that if any Gentile crossed over this line, he would be struck dead. It wasn't that he changed. It was that this was the plan from all along, but there were certain things that had to take place before it could all come together and they could then be accepted before him because of the sacrifice of his son. Paul is calling them sons, heirs, adopted by predestined plan, and everything that they ever knew about themselves was changed by this revelation and mystery. Their history was rewritten. This is what the gospel does. Isn't it? It rewrites our history. It says that every trial and circumstance and thing that we walked through before we came to Christ was all a part of his plan as he was weaving a scarlet thread to our lives, wooing and drawing us to himself so that one day we would be brought to our knees and see ourselves as we truly are as sinners and yet see him as he truly is a loving and righteous God who sacrificed himself for the people that he had chosen to love. The gospel rewrites our history. It changes the course of our lives. Why? Because it unites us to Christ. How could all this be? Because in God's wisdom, he set it up so that these who are outside of the covenant could be united with his son in the covenant of grace. This was Jesus' mission. This is what he was doing, to reconcile all things. It's why he gets up and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he sits down and he reads from the 61st chapter. Have you ever read the 61st chapter of Isaiah? Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks 
of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus reads this, and he closes the scroll, and he puts it down. He says, this day, this has been fulfilled. Why? Because this is what Jesus came to do. He's rewriting their history. Did you hear all of these things that are being exchanged? The poor are receiving good news. The brokenhearted are being bound up. The captives are being set at liberty. Those that are in prison, the doors are being opened. Their chains are being loosed. Those who mourn are being granted joy. Beautiful garments of praise instead of mourning. They're being planted secure. This is the exchange. You see, as Christians, our primary identity when we come to Christ moves from being in sin to being in Christ. We were in sin, but now we are in Christ. Every thought and every desire of our hearts was sin and sin continually. But now, as we are brought in Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to work on our hearts and change our hearts and change our desires. Where once all we desired was sin, now we desire God and we desire Christ. And in Him, in Christ, what do we find? We find what Paul says in chapter 1. This is why he's saying to them in chapter 3, Have you been listening? Have you heard? of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly and already the mystery. What, what was that mystery? We've already been talking about it. And what do we find that we have in Christ? We find every spiritual blessing is ours in Him. Not because we have obeyed, not because we've earned such great favor from God, but because He was obedient for us and earned this favor for us, grace upon grace. Sealed not with ink, but with blood. What do we find if we're in Christ? We find that there's good news for the poor because God is rich in mercy. And he's proven it in Christ. What do we find? We find that the brokenhearted can be bound up because Christ was broken for you. And that there is an inheritance in him. That there's liberty for the captives because of the redemption and the forgiveness that is in Christ's blood. And all of this is from God who works all things according to the purpose of His own will to the praise of His own grace. God had a definite plan. And what was this definite plan? It was to redeem for Himself a particular people through particular blood spilled by a particular man on a particular tree, on a particular hill, on a particular day in history to accomplish a definite and particular atonement. To bring oneness at onement. Jesus did it on the cross on our redemption hill. 
And he stretched out his arms, and what did he say? He said, it is finished. He has done it. It is done. You see, church, this is the drama and the story that is now supposed to define our lives. Because if we are in Christ, we have a new identity. We were rebels, but we have been changed by the blood of Jesus because Jesus paid the price. Therefore, we are the redeemed. That is who we are. By faith in Him, a new dominant story. Let's think about identity. We've talked about this almost a year ago. What, what is identity? Identity is who we believe ourselves to be, but where does this belief come from? You see, who we believe ourselves to be is shaped by the dominant story in our life. That's why it's so important that Paul is showing these Greek Gentiles that God is rewriting their history. Why? Because he's showing them that there is a more dominant story that is theirs in Christ than the one that is theirs by their natural and national heritage. Jeff Vanderstelt in his Gospel Primer says, We live in story, and all of us have been shaped by a dominant story. Is the story that most shapes your life and identity the story of God that is told throughout the Bible? Or is your story a story from your culture or your dysfunctional background or a stack of lies that makes up the primary narrative of your life? When you think about who you are, is your mind drawn to the narrative of Scripture? Or is it drawn to the series of events that have led up to this point in your life till now? That through the lie of the enemy is trying to tell you a different story. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve had a story already. They were in it. God had given it to them. He planted them in this story. And that dragon comes along and what does he do? He begins to whisper a lie to them that perhaps perhaps God couldn't be trusted. Let me ask you this morning, do you wear your decisions? Do you wear your successes and failures like a cloak or a badge or a mugshot? denoting who you are to the world? Well, this is who I am because these are the choices I make. Well, this is who I am because that's who my family is. Or this is who I am because my dad really screwed up. Where are you drawing your dominant story from? If it's from any thing other than the gospel, you have an identity problem. You see, someone tells us we're stupid when we are a kid, and we latch on to that, and we believe it. 
It becomes the dominant story in our lives. And every time something goes wrong, we listen to that narrative from so many years ago and we believe the lie that this happened because we're stupid. Or it can go the other way. It can become a different kind of law to us. Someone says the opposite. Oh, you're so smart. You're so clever. And that becomes the dominant story. And now... We have this bar in front of us that we're always trying to reach and attain to because someone said we were so smart and so clever and that's become our identity. And so we have to prop that up all the time. Always trying to reach and overachieve because you're smart and you live your life trying to look like you have it all together. But like a duck that sits on the top of the water If anyone could see underneath all the lies, they would see those feet just going crazy underneath trying to stay up. Because smart has become your identity. Clever has become who you are. And if anybody could see you mess up or make a mistake, then all of that would begin to crumble. You have an identity problem. Or maybe you are just way more adjusted than everybody else, than the rest of us. And you pride yourself in how well adjusted you are. You look on the rest of us emotional creatures who just can't seem to get ourselves together, you have an identity problem too. But here's the warning for you. It's going to take an extreme amount of pain and humbling to get you to see through all of your pride. Don't worry though. God disciplines those he loves. And when he bows you down, remember this and look to him to be your all in all. It can be so many things, more than I can list today, but I'll give it a shot. I'm powerful, I'm a loser, I'm naive, I make bad decisions, I'm high class, I'm low class. I always choose the wrong guy. I'm loose. I'm afraid. I can't do it. I can do anything. I'm not afraid of anything. I am scared to death. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm a city person, an urbanite. I'm a country bumpkin. E-harmony or farmers only. Educated, uneducated. Employed, unemployed, unfriendly, friendly, extrovert, introvert, likable, hated. The list goes on and on. And any one of us can latch on to any one of those things and try to begin to draw identity from it. But this is what you will find. It will become your slave master. Because you will have to do to try to continue to become that which you have set your eyes upon. Instead of looking unto Christ who makes you who you are and letting what you do spring 
from that well of everlasting life? Do you internalize things that cause you to think about yourself in a certain way that has nothing to do with who God is and what he has done, but rather has everything to do with you and what you've done? Then you have an identity problem. I I have an identity problem. So often, my view of life is Mike-centered instead of God-centered. And perhaps you're in the same place. You have an anthropocentric view of life, which means it's all about man and what man can do instead of a theocentric life, which means that everything is centered around who God is and what he has done in Christ. That's where true identity comes from. Do you care more about what other people think about you than what God thinks? You have an identity problem. You need a new dominant story, one that cannot be shaken or taken away. A.W. Tozer said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I agree. Why? Because what we believe about who God is and what he is like and what he has done will ultimately shape what we believe about ourselves, who we are, and how we think that life actually works. And so Paul is here again in Ephesians, hammering away at our identity in Christ because he is telling us who we are. He's telling the Ephesians who they are in Christ. He's showing us our new identity and what we have as a result. And these verses in chapter 1 through 3 are unpacking that mystery of the blessings we've received in God, namely our salvation. But all of it can be summarized in this one word, the namesake of our church family here, redemption. That we were bought back with a price. The very blood of Jesus Christ. Because Paul wants the people of the church in Ephesus to know, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know today, that the dominant story in our lives is the story of God's redemption in Christ. The story about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and in our place. Because if in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of the Father's grace which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, then that means we have a new identity. This is what Paul is reminding them of here. He's pointing them back to what he's already written to them here and perhaps even elsewhere through other writings. And he's saying that this mystery is profound, but I'm announcing to you the good news that once you were not the people of God, but now you are. Once you had no inheritance, but now you are fellow heirs, members of the same body, chapter 3, verse 6, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
if this is true, then we, all who believe, are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. We were rebels, but now we are redeemed. Gentiles who have been made clean by the blood of Jesus, adopted sons and daughters who have been welcomed to the table that the Father has prepared for us. And so an invitation is given. Come, take, and eat. Be reminded of the dominant story in your life. The one that began when Jesus offered the substitutionary sacrifice that was required for you to have atonement before God. We don't have to guess what the mystery is that Paul is talking about. We're not still looking for someone to come along and tell us that they got a revelation from the Lord on the mystery. We know the mystery. And the mystery is this. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Would you stand with me this morning? As you come this morning to the table in just a moment and you take and eat and feed on Christ in your hearts by faith, my prayer is that you would be reminded that no matter what story you have been listening to up till this point, that the most dominant story in your life and the only one that matters is that because of Christ, you have been called a son or a daughter of God. And you have been welcomed to the table because of His sacrifice for you and on your behalf. Father, we praise You for the redemption that is through Christ's blood, the gracious forgiveness of sins according to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. And so we say together to you, God, alone be the glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.